Well, amen. Thank you for leading us in those great Christ-centered songs. I appreciate uh, John stepping in and helping with the worship team this morning and, and as the cars are on vacation. And uh, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You heard that right. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Last week... Uh, we began diving back into the very heart of what we're all about as a Christian church. And my burden last week was just to show you that the gospel, the good news, is at the center of the message of the entire Bible from Old Testament all the way as we move into the gospel of Jesus Christ in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then throughout the New Testament. And today, I want to continue thinking about the good news of the gospel and really, I, again, have one burden, and that is to show you what is the greatest thing about the gospel, what it's all about. And let me, let me go ahead and just tell you, so, so you're not in suspense the whole time. Knowing God is the greatest thing about the gospel. Knowing God. So let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. As we begin, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now here you go. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is defending his ministry. He's defending his apostleship. He's defending what he preaches and why. And as we open up in Second Corinthians 4, we see that there was something compelling. There was one thing that had grabbed a hold of this man that we call the Apostle Paul. There was one thing that propelled his ministry in tough times. It was his guiding star, his north star, this compelling something. And this compelling something drove him on in ministry. It shaped and formed the essence of what he preached, and it kept him from straying. It kept him from preaching Crafty things, cutesy things, culturally swayed things. It kept him right in the middle of the gospel road. Paul was a gospel preacher. And this is one of the great passages of the Bible that I would say gets at the very heart, the blazing center, the nucleus of the gospel to see what it's really all about. And actually, you can back up into chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, and right there at the end, look at what he says in verse 18. But we all with unveiled faces beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. 
We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So there is that idea of the glory of the Lord is what he had beheld. The gospel is about this. It's about bringing us personally into an encounter with the living God and more specifically, the glory of God. And more specifically still, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That had arrested Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, and it guided his entire life. It was at the very center of his identity. And I think what I want us to see today is that this idea of seeing and beholding and experiencing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that is what the gospel is all about. If I were to ask you to write down what the gospel is all about, there's probably some things, probably some right things you would write down. You might write down some things about the historical facts about Jesus, his atoning death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his coming back. You might write that down. You would probably write some stuff down about good news from last week, right? There were some things you would say, and I would say, what is the good of the gospel? What does it actually accomplish? Why do we need to hear it? What does it do? You would probably write then, well, it gets us to heaven or something like that. And I would say, why do we want to go to heaven? And then some people would say things like, well, it's a good place. There's no sin there. There's no pain there. Right things. Those are all right things. Or you would say we'd be reunited with our Christian loved ones. All kinds of It's a, it's a place of, of beauty. It's a place where there's no death. All right things. And I would ask the question, so what? Is that what the gospel is all about? Really, it's not. The gospel is about knowing God. That's what it's about. And this is one of the great passages that teaches us that. But before we get to that, this idea of beholding the glory of God, I want you to see in verses 3 and 4 the supernatural conspiracy to obscure the gospel. There is a supernatural conspiracy in the heavenly places or the supernatural realm to obscure the gospel, to blind us from it. On Wednesday nights for the last uh, two weeks, We've been looking at, and we will for three weeks to come, the unseen realm. Fascinating study as we're looking at what the Bible actually teaches. And here's what we're finding. The Bible teaches that the story, you know, we've got our story. We've got our context of of my life in America, 21st century. But our story is placed in a bigger story, a story of humanity. And before that, a story of the heavenly places. And what we're seeing is that right from the get-go in the book of Genesis, we see that we were created. This, this world has not always existed. God chose to create beings and create things in the heavenly places or in the supernatural realm and also in what we know in the created realm, the material realm. And then we find in Genesis chapter 3 that there was a heavenly rebellion Some of those created beings decided they wanted to be as gods. And they rebelled against God. And then we see Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, they're placed in a garden. And God has given them a job to do, a cultural mandate. Go out and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule as my vice regents. Rule as my stewards 
on this world. But they were there in the garden. And one of those supernatural beings that's presented in Genesis 3 as a serpent comes and tempts them. Tempts them to also rebel against God. And to trade what they had. Think about what they had walking with God face to face daily in this wonderful, perfect place. And instead, the serpent, he devises a temptation to see something else as better, as more glorious, and to rebel against God. And that's exactly what they did. And they fell. And sin has been endemic in the human race ever since. It's been there. But listen, 2 Corinthians 4 says that there is a supernatural conspiracy, not just back in the garden, but still today. And it says, he makes an astounding statement that in verses 3 and 4, that the gospel is indeed veiled. Some people do not see the good news as good news. They just miss it all together. Why? Verse 4, those to whom the gospel is veiled, veiled, it says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Who is that? I thought, I thought Yahweh. I thought the Creator was the God of this world. And he says, no. That's, that's Satan. Has a dominion over this world. He's called little g, God of this world. And he's blinded people to God, to the truth of God, to the glory of God, to the joy that we find in God. An astounding statement. So listen to this. We're blind. We are blind to the glory of God when we're unbelievers. That means we have no spiritual perception. I mean, you know what blind means. We don't see it. I was reading a story, this true story, I think it was in the 19th century. There was a reporter that was going by a department store, and he said there were three children. Two had sight, and one was blind. And they were looking in that department store window, and they saw this beautiful little doll, this toy that they wanted. And the blind child wanted to know, describe it to me. And they began to describe what it looks like, but having never seen anything, it made no sense. And that reporter wrote a story about it. Not long later, D.L. Moody came to town and was preaching, and, and that reporter decided to go and to um, uh, listen to D.L. Moody preach the gospel to try to debunk it, to try to write it off as nonsense, and went, and D.L. Moody quoted that reporter's story about the children with sight, describing to the blind child that little toy. And then D.L. Moody said this, it is just like the gospel. Those who have seen it, trying to describe it to the lost, to the unbeliever who is blinded to it, does not have the perception, and that shook the reporter to his core. This says that the God of this world blinds people to the most glorious, wonderful thing that there is, and that is to God himself. Sin blinds us. We are deceived because of sin. It disconnects us from God, who is the source of our life. Listen, God is the very reason for our life. He wants to walk with us and commune with us and know us as a beloved father to his children, 
And we do not, when we're lost in our sin, before the light of the gospel of Christ comes in and gives us sight, we just don't see it. We just don't see it. And I think that sometimes as Christians, once we've seen it, we begin to think about other things as more valuable. And today, I just want to come back and say, the gospel is about knowing God. And people are blinded that, to that, and they need to see God. So there is a supernatural conspiracy that obscures the gospel to unbelievers. But then Paul talks about, in verses 4 through 6, the supreme good of the gospel is knowing God. The supreme good of the gospel is knowing God. So look at what he says the gospel is about. Verse 4, negatively, that is, that, that those who don't see it, those who Eyes are blinded. Spiritual eyes are blinded to the gospel. What is it that they don't see? Well, verse 4 says they don't see the light of the gospel, the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So negatively, if you're lost, you do not see the light, the beauty of the glory of God in Christ, who is the image of God. Positively, then, he says, for those who have been saved... When you come to see the gospel and perceive it, and you're born again by repentance and faith in Christ, look at what happens. Light shines out of the darkness, verse 6. He says, The one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. He's shown in our hearts to what? Give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is ultimately all about. Seeing God in all of His splendor and beauty and knowing Him and coming to Him and exalting in Him. And so in this passage, we, we see several times the glory of God, the glory of God. That can become Christian speak or just cliche. It's just something we say, glory to God, right? But what is the glory of God? Let's consider that for a minute because what I'm telling you is that the whole point of the gospel is to behold the glory of God, to experience it firsthand, to know Him and to walk in this glory. So what is the glory of God? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Hmm? Someone said that defining the glory of God is like defining the word beauty. I mean, pretty, pretty hard. There's a lot of things we can easily define. The glory of God is not one of them, but let me give you a little stab at it. The Bible talks about the glory of God in terms of radiant light, which is a little bit strange if we're thinking about it honestly. The glory of God is, is like the beauty of God. The glory of God is the radiance and the emanating forth from His very being, who He is and what He is, so it's a shining forth. It's the essence and the character of God going out and being perceived in some way. The Bible talks about the glory of God as something brilliant, as something powerful, as something overwhelming. In fact, so powerful, it's scary at times when a sinful man or woman beholds it. And we see that throughout the Bible when, when even when people caught a veiled glimpse a filtered glimpse of the glory of God. It shook them to their very core. It changed them. And that's what Paul said in, in chapter 3, verse 18. As we're beholding the glory of God as Christians, we're being changed. The glory of God is changing us from glory to glory. 
It's making us more like him as we behold this essence of God. Ultimately, I found what one theologian wrote is probably the most helpful in understanding the glory of God in this context when he says it is the summation and the concentration of all of God's attributes. It is summing up everything that God is. So when the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's who he is radiating out, shining forth in ways that we experience it. So it's the summation of all of God's attributes, all of his beauty, all of his power, all of his holiness, all of his goodness, all of his love, all of his kindness in a way that we can experience it. John Piper wrote a book called God is the Gospel. That, that title intrigued me years ago and I picked it up. God is the Gospel. Now listen to this, how Piper opens up this book. It is stunning how seldom God himself is proclaimed as the greatest gift of the Gospel. When I say that God is the Gospel... I mean that the highest, best, decisive good of the gospel, without which no other gifts would be good, is the glory of God in the face of Christ revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. What he says is we talk a lot about some of the side benefits and perks of the gospel without often getting to the point that God, knowing him and experiencing him, is the point of it all. I remember years ago preaching a sermon, one of the first sermons I ever preached on a Sunday morning. It was about heaven. It was about heaven. Heaven is a, man, it's just this concentrated essence of God. In fact, it says that there's no sun in the new heaven and new earth. Why? Because God's glory literally illuminates the place, powers the place. There's no need for a sun. You think about how powerful the sun is. God is more powerful. He created it. He spoke it into existence. And I remember preaching that sermon and thinking about how do we think about these things. And we talked about how heaven is a real place. And it's a beautiful place. And there's life. And there's all of these things. There's culture. And just it's just astounding what you see about heaven when you read about it. And at the time, we were building a new house. And I remember my illustration was, you know, Emily was probably about five Isaac was still in Mama's belly, and uh, he was the impetus for the new house, really. We needed another bedroom, and we were building this house, and it wasn't, it's not quite as spectacular as heaven, you know? But, but the walls are, were painted gold, and, and I remember when we had our wood floors treated, they were so shiny, he put that polyurethane, I was like, man, it's like streets of gold! And the illustration I gave, and I, I, don't, I don't remember hardly any of my sermons. I don't even barely remember what I preached last week, but I remember this, being struck by this, because it was something that God spoke into my heart. What would it be like if we finished that house? And I took my little five-year-old daughter, and when Isaac came along, and I said, here you go, kiddos, there's the key to your new house. And we put them over there in that house and said, but Mama and I are going to stay over here at the old house. You think that would be a glorious thing for them? No, they would be dead in minutes. How much quicker when they're teenagers? The glory of that place was it was a place for our family. The glory was not in the place. And I think that sometimes we approach heaven 
as a beautiful, wonderful place that we want to go and forget that if God wasn't there, it wouldn't be heaven. We get caught up in all of the trappings of heaven and eternal life and thinking about going on to be with those who have gone before and all of that. Yeah, that's great. But it's nothing compared to being with our Creator. You'll never get tired of walking with God and beholding His glory when we see all the more clearly with unveiled faces. And so what I want to say to you today is that the gospel is about knowing God ultimately. That is the highest good. That is the supreme joy of being saved, is knowing God. Let me give you a couple of other verses to back this up. Psalm 27.4. David writes, One thing that I have asked of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in His temple. Did you see that? David says, if I, if I, could, if I could only have one thing, you know what it would be? One thing I ask of you, Lord, let me come into your presence forever. And he says, to gaze upon your beauty. Beautiful things we never tire of seeing. God is the perpetual beauty. And David said, that's the one thing that we need. That's the one thing my heart longs for. And I tell you today, I'm afraid that many Christians have no longing for the beauty of God. Because something else has caught our eye. 1 Peter 3.18, Peter writes this, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, uh, unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Why did Jesus die? Well, there's a lot of ways we could answer that question, but Peter says in 1 Peter 3, to bring us to God, who we were separated from. That's why he died, to make a bridge, to make a door, to make a way, to clear the path, to bring us to God. So, there is this supernatural conspiracy to obscure the gospel. But, the gospel comes in and we see the light. When we hear and comprehend and understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we can know God. And that is the supreme good of the gospel. And then verses 4 through 6, I want you to see the shining light of God's glory in Christ. See, we can talk abstractly and obscurely, and I can try to define the glory of God for you. We talk about light and radiance and beauty, abstract concepts. And, and what you may have conjuring up in your mind may be something totally different what someone else has when we think about the glory and the greatness and the power of God. But God does something. He gives us a concrete Image, he actually gives us a person to show us the goodness and the glory of God. And that person is Jesus Christ. Verses 4 and 6, you'll notice. First, it's in verse 4, it's the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then in verse 6, it's the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. How do we see the glory of God? What does the goodness and the beauty of God look like? Quite simply, it looks like Jesus. The Bible is very clear. Now listen, salvation is about knowing the God who is and seeing Him and experiencing 
experiencing Him. The God who is the source of all life. The God who is the Creator. He is the architect. He's the builder of all of creation. He's the giver of every good gift. He is the happy, blessed God. He is the Father who delights in His children. He is the fullness of joy. He is the source of all good things. Listen, if there's anything good that you like, you enjoy. I enjoyed a good steak last night. That came from God. Via a farmer, via a cow, via my wife cooking it, you see. But God was the source of that good gift. And every good gift comes from the Father above. And salvation is knowing Him and seeing Him. And what does He look like? He looks like Jesus. He is found. His glory is seen most clearly in the face of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that if you've seen Jesus, actually Jesus said this, He said, if you've seen me, you've seen what? <laughs> and people go, say what? You're, you're a man. And you're saying that if we've seen you, we have seen the Father who is spirit? He says, yes. That's exactly what the Bible claims. That in the face, in the person, in the work of Christ, we can see most clearly what God is like. In Jesus, we've seen the glory of God. It's what John 1 says in verse 14. We've seen the glory of the only begotten when Jesus came. The glory of God is exhibited, manifested, made clear for us. Because, because we can relate to a human can relate to their face and their heart and their actions and the things that they do. It inspires us. It speaks to us. It makes some things very clear. Jonathan Edwards had an interesting phrase about the divine attributes being exhibited in Jesus. Here you go. Here, here's a phrase for you. Write this down. You'll like this. He said, in Jesus there is an admirable conjunction of the divine excellencies. <laughs> Use that on somebody at lunch today. Let me tell you about Jesus in whom there is the admirable conjunction of the divine excellencies. A conjunction is something that puts two things together. It's like the word but. Right? You've got two independent phrases or clauses or sentences and you can have a comma in the word but and it conjoins them. It puts them together. And in Jesus we have the admirable conjunction. We have the divine glory in human flesh where we can comprehend it. And Edward says in Jesus, we have that admirable conjunction. We see the divine excellencies, that is, His great attributes manifested in this person, Jesus Christ. The glory of God mixed with humility. His inapproachable transcendence with a human nearness. The exacting justice of God tempered by mercy. And the majesty of Him who sits on the throne on high mixed with meekness and lowliness. Jesus shows us who God is. And invites us to see what God is really all about. Now listen to me. The greatest good of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is knowing God. And we know Him only 
because he has manifested himself to us. And he has done so most clearly in the face of Jesus, who is the exact image of God. All of the attributes of God dwell fully in Jesus. That's what Colossians says. What do you see when you hear the name Jesus? Hey, let's do something. Close your eyes for a minute. This is an invitation. Just close your eyes for a minute. What comes to your mind? What do you see in your mind's eye when I say Jesus Christ? What do you see? I did that little exercise and I closed my eyes and and I'll tell you it took me back to when I was saved. Because that was the first time I ever saw with spiritual eyes Jesus Christ. And I saw him there on a cross. God, what what are you all about? What are you like? What do I see that you're like in Jesus? And then Jesus specifically who went to that cross. But we can't just think about the cross. We have to think about the way he treated people. About his meekness and his kindness. His compassion to the lowly and the lost and the poor and the hurting and the diseased and the sick and the dying and the demon possessed. I saw in Jesus' face a God who is self-sacrificing, who is strong and courageous, so strong and courageous and self-sacrificing and loving that He came down to a lost people, a people who were in rebellion, a blind people, and ministered to their very needs. And called them with love and acceptance. And said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it's easy and light. Come to me. And I saw this self-sacrificing God who loved us so much that he left the glories of heaven took on mortal human flesh, cared for us, ministered to us. And there were absolutely no bounds to his love. There was no point at which he says, I won't go any further than that. He went all the way to the cross, all the way to death, to die for you and for me. To rescue us from the blindness and the death and the ravages of sin so that we could be restored to the Father. So that we could know joy eternally and forevermore. In this life, we get little glimpses and tastes of joy and pleasure, and they're for a season. Sometimes they even come through sinful things, things that were God's good gift that we twist and pervert, but but we have tastes of the glory of God. And what Jesus says is, I'm offering that to you forevermore. I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. What do you see in the face of Jesus Christ? I see love. 
John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. To rescue us from the jaws of death, 1 John 3.16 says, And we know love by this. You see, we think we know what love's all about. And John says, here's how you know love. Here's how you see it. He laid down his life for us. And that is love. Ephesians 2.4 But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. I love that phrase. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our sins, He made us alive together with Christ and He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God's love was not temporal. We see it manifested clearly in Jesus, in all of His life and in His death, and He said that's a foretaste of glory divine. And when you trust in Jesus, you know what you have? You have a seat in the heavenly places forevermore. That's what Ephesians 2 says. What are we going to do there? What are we going to experience there? I'll tell you, the mercy and the kindness and the goodness and the love and the glory of God that we can't even fathom. That's what He wants for us, is to experience the crazy, amazing, unthinkable love and joy and beauty and light and power and life of the God who we've been separated from. We need to be restored because there is nothing greater. I don't care what the greatest thing you've ever experienced, the greatest joy, the greatest happiness, the greatest thrill. It is nothing. It's like a one grain of sand on a seashore when compared with the glories, unthinkable and unspeakable, that are at the right hand of the Father. And Jesus went to that cross and he put out both hands. He says, come to me. He loves you so much. He wants you to see the light of the glory of God. And you'll only see it in the face of Jesus Christ. Here's a quote for you. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. He did not die that people would be happy in any other thing other than the glory of God. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God where there is everlasting joy. Hey, folks, heaven's just the address. God's the person there. He's our family. He's the one we need who is beautiful, glorious, and lovely, and radiant, and powerful, and merciful and kind beyond description. He is the only source of complete, unbridled joy. And today, I want to invite you to experience the glory of God right there where you're at. 
in the face of Jesus. If you're sitting there today and you had never come to Christ, maybe you came in here an unbeliever, blinded to the glory of Christ. And as these words have gone forth, your eyes spiritually have opened. And you're placing your faith in Jesus that's being born again. You're repenting of sin, repenting of blindness and death, and you're trusting only in Christ because He is the way to be saved. I want to invite you to do that today. If that is what's going on in your heart, surrender your life to Christ. Tell Him that in prayer. Christian, if you're here today and something has obscured your sight, has become, something else has become your main thing, I would invite you to lay those things aside. Behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. During this time of invitation, whatever the Lord's laid on your heart to do, if you want to surrender your life to Christ, Come and make that public today. You need to follow up and be baptized. Commit your life to Him. Make a public profession of faith. There's no greater joy on this earth than to surrender to Christ and to have life. Maybe during this time you just want to spend these moments praying for someone who you believe needs Christ. Do that. Pray for your needs. Whatever you need to do today, respond. Sing this song.